0: Listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.
1: Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with us this hour so much to get through so much news right now. Xenophobia in York region because of the coronavirus. Do you agree with the letter and the notice that's been put out by that school board? Is there censorship underway over the life of Kobe Bryant? Can we, at this point or when? Can we have a full and complete discussion about the man's life? We're going to talk about that. Marco Muzzo, who is up for parole, he is the man who got drunk, got behind the wheel, and killed four people, including three children. He apparently enjoys conjugal visits and mini-golf. All of that behind bars as he awaits the possibility of parole, a conversation with the reporter that broke that story later on in this hour. Plus... Aaron O'Toole wants to battle the radical left, the editorial board of the Toronto Star, and also hyphens. He is anti-hyphen. We'll get to that. But We want to begin quickly with a high-level meeting that has just wrapped up at Toronto City Hall about gun violence. And according to the Toronto Police Service Public Safety data, there were 290 people either killed or injured by shootings in Toronto in 2019. That was up 23% from 2018. But you do not have to live in Toronto to know that the scourge of gun violence has spread right across the GTA. So we had mayors and police leaders from across the region meeting at Toronto City Hall, and John Tory, wrapping up with a news conference, talked about the fact that they received evidence that both the perpetrators and the victims of gun violence are now younger than they were a decade ago.
2: Um, We can't do this alone. Uh, Property taxes were never meant to fund uh, what what amount to social programs, Um, and this is very much a shared uh, responsibility so that we, uh, as governments, have put up significant funds for these programs, but at the same time we need to have partners uh, in the other governments, and we've seen those kinds of partnerships uh, come and sometimes go.
1: That is John Tory talking about the investment in social programs to help the youth of this city. Youth unemployment continues to be a scourge also. You know, you have no job, no future, no hope. It is easy to get caught up in violence. And guns are more and more available. And the evidence shows that the guns are coming from one place the majority of the time. Sometimes they're stolen from legitimate gun owners here in Canada, but more and more those guns come from the United States that come across the border. And listen to this, isn't this interesting here? As John Tory admits there has simply not been enough sharing of information between local police agencies and border services.
2: There haven't been the kind of granular specific focused discussions between local police services and the border authorities about how these guns are coming across and uh, how they're ending up uh, in our cities. And so that's something that we very much hope uh, will happen and we're going to make that specific request.
1: That is John Torrey speaking at City Hall at this uh, high-level meeting, after this high-level meeting of mayors and police leaders and the Solicitor General. Sylvia Jones had an a, an odd thing I thought to say. When was talking about bail and issues with sentencing, she specifically called out a judge for a recent decision about human trafficking in which the judge decided that jail time was not appropriate she specifically made mention of this and said that was inappropriate and i will leave it here today at this point we'll talk about it perhaps later but is that appropriate do you feel comfortable with an elected official openly criticizing the judgment of a sitting judge i want to move to aaron o'toole Aaron O'Toole has thrown his hat into the proverbial ring. He wants to be the next leader of the conservative party. He launched a video yesterday that was odd. Odd, perhaps. I want to play a little bit of it for you in a- and ask the question, is there a constituency of voters out there who will respond to comments like this?
0: Who's going to defend our history, our institutions against attacks from cancel culture and the radical left?
1: Cancel culture and the radical left. Ooh! And as you're, as you're hearing him say that, what's on the screen uh, are shots of a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald being taken down and carted off.
0: And then there's this. We need strong leadership to unite our party, take the hyphen out of being a conservative. And ensure we grow our movement to win.
1: Wait, he's anti hyphen now. This is a problem that we have. We're, we're hyphens. Listen, Mister O'Toole. If if you become prime minister, I want you to get. I want you to get at the semicolon. Man, the semicolon has got to go before the hyphen. I mean, priorities, people. Now. O'Toole spoke with Global News Radio in Alberta on The Daniel Smith Show just prior to his official launch in Calgary later that evening, and here he answers why he has decided to launch his bid in Alberta and then takes this swipe at certain segments of the media.
0: Trudeau, who over the course of his time as Prime Minister, has charted a path to hurt the progress of Albertans. and he's done it to sort of win the favor of the Toronto Star and the CBC. He hasn't articulated the need for us to fight for opportunities, stand up for our resource sector.
1: That is Aaron O'Toole speaking earlier, or yesterday, pardon me, on Global News Radio in Alberta. I want to bring in Daryl Bricker, who is CEO at Ipsos, to get a, a sense of what the polls say about the resonance of these messages and who it is that Mr. O'Toole is appealing to. Hi, Daryl. Hey, how you doing, Owen? I'm well. Are you anti-hyphen?
3: Well, I think what he's saying, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm anti-all uh, uh, punctuation. All punctuation, like A.A. Milne, right? I mean, uh, but uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, the um, uh, what he's doing is he's not speaking to uh, the electorate. He's speaking to conservatives. And so when you say to a conservative, a hyphenated conservative, they know exactly what, what he's talking about
1: what, so what, what, are, what is it what do you mean what oh, does whether, that mean? Whether
3: you're, you're a SoCon? Vet, you're, you're, yeah, whether you're a social conservative whatever so what he's trying to do is he's trying to expand the tent and say let's not divide ourselves into these various groups we all want to win and if we're going to win we have to win together is what he's trying to say to these folks and whatever he is saying while those messages may not resonate with a downtown toronto audience Downtown Toronto is voting for the for the conservative party these days anyway and by the way the conservative party really doesn't need them in order to win. Stephen Harper certainly didn't have them. Uh, he's speaking to people who feel that they're being um, that uh, that uh, their point of view isn't necessarily being regarded by our political elites. So this kind of wounded sense that you're being left out of the the mainstream in Canada and that uh, that uh, nobody's really representing your interests. That's what he's appealing to. And remember the number of people are going to vote in this leadership campaign is a a pretty small number and that's who he's speaking to
1: I want to get back to that radio interview yesterday in uh, Calgary where he answers this question that will dog him in any candidate for the conservative leadership where does he stand on so-called and here I go hyphen SOCON issues
0: I'm a principal Liberty rule of law conservative I wore a uniform to stand up for all rights And that means I don't pick or choose which I defend, whether it's for equality rights or or women's rights. I've been consistent on that in my public life. I've also stood up for religious freedom, conscience rights, freedom of speech. I don't pick and choose which I stand up for. So I've done that as an MP. I'm proud to have support of social conservatives. I said in my launch, I want to take the hyphen out.
1: Back again with the hyphen again. Always with the hyphen, Aaron O'Toole speaking yesterday on Global News Radio in Calgary and on the line, Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Is that going to do it? That is a fine line to walk when you're talking about, you know, marching in gay pride parades. For example, I I will mention that Peter McKay has just issued a statement saying that he has applied for permission to march in the Toronto gay pride parade.
3: Yeah, no, and I'm, I presume that, uh, that uh, Aaron O'Toole will do the same kind of thing. Um, but uh, the, the truth is, in, in all of this, he's speaking to a really exclusive group of people who are going to be voting in this, uh, in this campaign. And the next thing is he's also trying to position himself against, I think, what most people regard as the frontrunner, the person most people regard as the frontrunner, which is Peter McKay, who uh, was the previous leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, uh, that a lot of conservatives really see as anathema to what they want the conservative movement to be. So what he, particularly the most activist conservatives, so what he's saying is, I'm not Peter McKay. You can rely on me and not being a liberal, you know, wearing blue clothing. I'm going to be a a, a real conservative. So in order to win the leadership campaign, it, it looks like he feels he has to do this. And when you're starting from behind, Positioning your your main opponent as somebody that is not going to represent the values of core conservatives is probably a good idea, and then making sure that you align yourself with their values, your um, personally is is exactly what he's trying to do. So, from a political strategy point of, point of view, it's actually pretty transparent.
1: Daryl Bricker, is CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, appreciate you being on the program. Thanks, Daryl. Thanks, Alan. I want to begin with an update. There are now new details about the helicopter crash that killed Bryant and eight others on Sunday in California.
0: The last time the pilot talked to air traffic control, he reported he was climbing to avoid a cloud layer. Radar shows the chopper got to 2,300 feet and then began falling 1,000 feet into the hillside. The NTSB's Jennifer Hammondy.
1: Last radar contact was around 9.45 a.m., and is consistent with the accident
4: location.
0: There was no black box on board. One was not required. That will make it a bit more difficult to find answers. Right now, why the chopper crashed is unknown. Alex Stone, ABC News, Los Angeles.
1: As that investigation continues, the ripple effects of Kobe Bryant's death continue. Tonight's game between the Lakers and the Clippers has now been postponed by the NBA. It will be played at a later date. Quote out of respect for the Lakers organization, Kobe Bryant playing his entire professional career for the Los Angeles Lakers. Another uh, another result of this, Planters, which last week released a commercial in which a one hundred its one hundred and four year old mascot falls to its death after the company's nutmobile fears off a cliff. And Basically, this is an ad where Wesley Snipes and Matt Walsh all end up in a tree branch and Mr. Peanut saves them and he lets go and falls to his death. They have now decided they will not play that. They will take that. There was kind of a huge uh, advertising campaign in advance of the Super Bowl. That has been taken down. British News Institution BBC had to apologize after it mistakenly memorialized LeBron James in an effort to discuss Bryant's career. Essentially, they were talking about Bryant's death and his career, and then they played a supercut of LeBron James scoring in a game on Saturday night when he passed Bryant on the all-time scores. BBC then apologized on air. Also, and this is where you come in, where we talk about Bryant's life in its completeness. Quote, What happened is tragic. I am heartbroken for Kobe's family as tweeted actor Evan Rachel Wood, who has been an outspoken advocate for sexual assault survivors. Quote, he was a sports hero, he was also an alleged rapist, and all of those truths can exist simultaneously. Wood added to her message yesterday amid a backlash over the comments, Quote, it's a reminder that everyone will have different feelings and there is room for us to all grieve together instead of fighting. Quote, she wrote, Everyone has lost. Everyone will be triggered. So please show kindness and respect to all. All of this, meanwhile, a Washington Post employee has been suspended for tweets about Kobe Bryant. Felicia Sanmez posted a link to a 2016 article, not written by her, but it was a historical account of the sexual assault allegations against Bryant. The Washington Post... Suspended her, and employees at the newspaper have come together saying this was not proper. The union said instead of protecting and supporting a reporter in the face of abuse, the Post has placed her on administrative leave. Pardon me, that is from the Washington Post Guild. To talk more about this, and I understand that even to talk about it is going to make people angry, and I want your perspectives on it coming up. But to talk more about the backlash that is currently underway, I am joined by Manisha Krishnan, who is a senior editor and host at Vice. Welcome to the program.
4: Hi, thanks for having me on. Have you been
1: surprised that, first of all, A, what people put on social media, whether or not we are talking about the Washington Post reporter or the actor? Were you surprised what came out, or have you been surprised at all by the reaction to it?
4: Um, No, I'm not necessarily surprised. Uh, I was talking to Bruce Arthur, who's a Toronto Star sports journalist yesterday, and he was saying, you know, the rape case was a big part of Kobe's life and his legacy. Um, You know, it's probably one of the top things that people think about. Uh, when they think about him, aside from, obviously, his great achievements in the sport of basketball. um, And when you have someone like Julie Lalonde, who's one of the people who I reference, she's a women's rights advocate. She talks about this kind of thing all the time. So I don't think it's surprising that someone like her would tweet sort of reminding people of this dark part of his legacy.
1: But the reaction was swift. Mm -hmm. I mean, I understand that people were mourning. They felt like, you know, Kobe Bryant has been part of our lives for so long. The reaction was swift and very angry.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's just unfortunately the nature of Twitter um, and how how fast things escalate. And you have people who are being attacked, who are, you know, their addresses are being posted online, being told that they should be raped, that they should have died in the helicopter crash. Um, Just for pointing out a factual story, which is that Kobe Bryant was accused of rape.
1: And what do you make of what the Washington Post has done? And what, has been, what has been so interesting there is not only that the Post suspended this reporter, but then allowed an opinion piece to appear in its pages basically criticizing it for doing so.
4: Yeah, I think it's good that they allowed the opinion piece to run. I know that probably a lot of news organizations wouldn't allow that. Um, I think that their response certainly reflects poorly on them. I think the, the union uh, statement that was released was pretty damning. Um, and it pointed out that, you know, this is a reporter of theirs who's being attacked. She's being doxxed to the point where she felt like she had to check into a hotel um, and instead of supporting her in that, they kind of just hang her out to dry. And then their statement, uh, which they sent to me, said that her tweets displayed poor judgment. I mean, all she really did was tweet a factual story about the rape case. Um, and then she followed up by sharing some of the abuse that she was experiencing. So I think the post, um, you know, especially in the age of Me Too, when we're talking about these issues more, I think it's a really, really bad look for them.
1: Manisha, give me a sense of how do we deal with celebrities and their entire lives when something like this happens. If we can take it away from Kobe Bryant, how is it that we can discuss the legacy of any life that obviously has ups and downs, trials and tribulations, if we cannot have an open discussion in this case?
4: Yeah, it's, it's it's a tough issue. You know, it's one I've been thinking about a lot. I think that maybe some of the resentment Is coming from people who feel very genuinely sad that he's gone and they kind of feel like hey I'm not a rape apologist um, but I don't want to feel ashamed for grieving his loss and I think that there needs to be space for people to be allowed to mourn, but we also have to accept that some people, especially sexual assault survivors, uh, may feel a a totally different way about him. And sort of seeing him revered without this rape case being mentioned, uh, that has to be really difficult if you were, you know, the alleged victim in his specific case or just any victim. Um, So I think that we need to kind of be a little bit more understanding towards each other, and recognize that we're going to have very different experiences and complicated feelings around him.
1: Manisha Krishnan is Senior Editor and Host at Vice. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks, Alan. So what do you think? Should we even be talking about this? Does this anger you that I'm even bringing this up? 416 870 And as we wait for a call or two, I will just remind you of the basic information about the case. It happened in 2003, on June 30th, when Kobe Bryant paid a visit to a hotel in Colorado. While staying there, he went on a tour of the property with a 19-year-old woman who was working as a clerk at the front desk. The later, the woman later went to Bryant's hotel room as, at what she said was his request. Following the incident, which I will not get into, and I will warn that... Some may find it triggering to read too much about it. But Bryant, who was 24 at the time, was charged with one count of felony assault. He insisted the sex was consensual. He pleaded not guilty when the criminal case went to trial. Prosecutors ultimately dropped the criminal case on September the 1st, citing the victim's unwillingness to testify. Bryant then settled a civil case involving the rape allegations for an undisclosed sum in March of 2005, he did not admit any guilt in the settlement. I'm gonna go to the lines here quickly. Isaac, can we have a full and complete discussion about the life of Kobe Bryant in which we do not discuss this?
2: Yes, Alan, I think we should, but there are some things which we should not hold on people. If you take a case to court and you can't testify that says something else. And when you come out and settle that case outside of court, when someone is not guilty, when someone is not convicted, we shouldn't be talking about that for the people, because we don't know what happened now.
1: But I'm and talking, Isaac, I, 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 as I just yeah. read it, I read the facts. Yeah, yeah. And should we not discuss the facts when we discuss the life of Kobe Bryant?
2: He wasn't guilty. So should, why should I, we put this one on him?
1: because i i i don't know if you can discuss the man's life without discussing that bob to you what do you think
4: yes if he if you want to discuss his life
2: well the fact still remains he was found not guilty in a criminal court correct
1: that is correct and that is what i said when i discussed the facts of the case
2: now if he was found not guilty in a criminal court why would he turn around and pay the person out of court civilly instead of fighting that case? Obviously, he knows he did something wrong. I and
1: listen, he I, should be even though he's. You know, you know that a civil court case court and now? a criminal case have different levels of evidence, and and I would caution you to to not draw a conclusion between. Uh, a settlement and an admission of guilt. As I said, Mr. Bryant did not admit any guilt in that settlement. And I have time for one more. Jim, do you think we can discuss it, should we discuss it, when we talk about the life of Kobe Bryant?
3: Uh, yes, I do, in the way that uh, it's his history. So whether it's good, it's bad, it's positive, it's negative, if medias and uh, radio shows are going to go as far as the extent of saying, uh, what the person was all about then that's a part of what the person was all about as far as uh... society and social media is going on the bandwagon of uh, threatening people and stuff like that for bringing up such a thing i mean that's just ridiculous it's the history of a person just like anybody else and my uh, fault and what i see with all that is that people put athletes and celebrities on a very very high pedestal when they should not be
1: All right, Jim, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you to all our callers. Welcome back to the program, an update on what's going on with coronavirus, both here at home and in China. Let's begin at home, where York Regional District School Board has urged parents not to make assumptions about the coronavirus that could stoke xenophobia and racism against the Chinese community. Officials in York Region have issued a letter saying it's aware of escalated concern about the virus among families with Chinese heritage. An online petition circulating among parents is now calling on schools to ask students whose families have recently traveled to China to stay home for 17 days for self-quarantine. Here's more from the Canadian press. The petition calls on schools that are part of the York Region District School Board to ask students whose families have recently travelled to China to stay home for 17 days of
0: self-quarantine. York Region has a large Chinese population. School board officials issued a letter yesterday saying they're aware of escalated concerns
1: about the virus among families of Chinese heritage, but they're cautioning self-quarantine
0: requests run the risk of demonstrating bias and racism. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press.
1: Canada's top public health official said Monday that the risk to Canadians remains minimal after a second presumed positive case of the virus was discovered. I take as a point what the board chair and director of education is saying in York region district school board, asking a blanket, all kids that had recently been to China can't come to school. They have to quarantine for seven days, 17 days. That is not the right way to proceed. But at the same time, I think anybody who's got a kid in the system who might know of somebody who has actually been to China, you are going to be concerned. The motivation, after all, is about protecting our kids and the safety of our kids. And sometimes it's difficult to completely put your trust in officials to say, well, it's good, it's all fine. Because even though... Public health officials here are saying that the risk here is minimal. In China, it is a very different story. And I appreciate that is a long, long way away. And it is the role of the media not to inflame fear. But the number of cases of new coronavirus in China has now topped 4,500. The death toll, at least 106. Here is the spokesperson for the World Health Organization, Christian Lindemeyer, talking about the agency's risk assessment currently for the virus. The global risk assessment is high, the regional level is high, and for China it's very high. Lindemeyer then goes on to say he disputes suggestions that the virus is spreading rapidly now by its own momentum. So far, it's going back with travelers to, uh, to foreign countries, whether it's the home country of somebody or, or travel as such. It's not widely spreading outside of China. That is Christian Lindemeyer, who is a spokesperson for the World Health Organization, the latest on the outbreak in China. A number of nations now arranging flights to have their nationals brought out of Wuhan province, Canada not amongst those as of yet. Meanwhile, the Chinese embassy in Copenhagen is demanding that one of Denmark's largest newspapers apologize for a cartoon on the outbreak. The embassy calls it an insult to China. The cartoon which shows the Chinese flag with what resembles viruses instead of stars, did not intend to mock or ridicule China, according to the chief editor at the newspaper. We can't apologize for something we didn't think is wrong, said the chief editor on the newspaper's website. As far as I can see, there are two different types of cultural understanding here. The embassy has expressed its strong indignation and said that the cartoon, which was printed yesterday, is, quote, an insult to China and crossed the bottom line of civilized society and the ethical boundary of free speech, and it offends human conscience. Welcome back. Uh, Developing news on the coronavirus front. We were just talking about it in our last segment, and I've noticed that just within the last 15 minutes, Toronto Public Health has put out a new statement, this statement from the Medical Officer of Health, Eileen Davila, uh, who is the Medical Officer of Health uh, of Toronto Public Health, who reports that now the majority of individuals who arrived on... China Southern Airlines flight CZ311 that arrived in Toronto on January 22nd have now been contacted. You may know that the one confirmed case was on that flight and the second case, which is at this point still presumptive, both of those individuals were on that flight. So that's an update there from Toronto Public Health. Also, let's get to our streets. More carnage on the streets. Yesterday, a woman in hospital after being hit by a car in Scarborough. This happened around 6 p.m. on Monday near Morningside and Highway 401. Police say the victim was unconscious and was taken to hospital with life-threatening injuries. The driver did remain at the scene. They're looking for security in dash cam video, and this follows just a couple of hours after a 76-year-old man who was crossing the street at Dundas Street West near Scarlet Road was hit. He was taken to hospital where he later died. And I raise those two points because on this program, we continually talk about the death toll on our streets from bad design, from lack of enforcement, from impaired drivers. The reasons are many, but it is increasingly dangerous to be a vulnerable road user in the GTA. Speaking of impaired drivers, the drunk driver who killed three children and their grandfather in a crash north of Toronto in September of 2015 could be out on parole as early as this spring. That according to the victim's family. We were notified late last year that an application had been made as we are a registered victim, said Jennifer Neville-Lake to Global News, who is the mother who lost her children and father in that crash. Marco Muzzo was sentenced to 10 years in prison in 2016 after pleading guilty to four counts of impaired driving causing death, two counts of impaired driving causing bodily harm. In 2015, Muzo had just returned from his bachelor party in Miami on a private plane when he picked up his SUV at Pearson International Airport and drove home. There is currently a petition underway to block his bail application. What has been happening with Mr. Muzo when he's been behind bars? Well, since he was transferred from a medium security unit to a minimum security unit at Beaver Creek Prison in Gravenhurst, Mr. Musso has apparently been playing mini-golf, horseshoes, bocce. Musso frequently has barbecues with friends, has private family visits, or PFVs, otherwise known as conjugal visits, with his fiancée. Jeremy Grimaldi is a crime and justice reporter for YorkRegion.com who broke this story and joins me on the line. Hi, Jeremy. Hello there. Tell me about how you, obviously not giving away your sources, but how you got this information.
2: Sure. Um, I, uh, I, I've i been following the case, along with Global News, actually, quite quite closely since, since it happened. Uh, it happened up here in Vaughan, which I cover. And... Um, after he was denied his last parole, I wrote a story um, about that, and I was contacted uh, by someone in in the prison, um, and he, he had mentioned to me uh, some of the activities uh, that Muto's engaging with, which includes what you were mentioning in your lead-up, uh, mini-pipe, bocce ball horseshoes. Uh, you know, they can even play basketball. Uh, and he, he mentioned that, and he, he said that he thought that the public should know what what he's been doing during his time behind bars. Considering he, in his words, and I I, I can't I I wasn't able to confirm this that he knows drug dealers who've had a worse ride uh, than Musso.
1: Is there a sense that within the facility that Mister Musso is being held in that he enjoys some sort of status or preferred treatment in that facility?
2: No, and that's uh, to, to be clear about that. It, it doesn't appear that uh, it appears that everyone has the same ability um, to, to to have access to to activities such as these. You, um, from what I understand, from former prisoners and from the Correction Service of Canada, uh, when you're when you're admitted into this prison, uh, it's sort of a, a, a the final place before you are released back into the community, you're you're uh, assessed, um, and based on, on on what you've shown to the correction services in your in your time served, you're given a, a plan where you can uh, better yourself, and and based on your behavior, you're rewarded with uh, access to activities and conjugal visits and. Uh, releasing uh, the, the inmate into the, the community to, to perform a number of charity uh, activities or even uh, pleasure for pleasure to visit friends
1: and so on. Speaking with Jeremy Grimaldi, a crime and justice reporter for YorkRegion.com, who has broken the story about the current conditions that Marco Muzzo is being held in, uh, give me a sense of the process for bail. I mentioned off the top that he is coming up shortly for bail and that there's a petition against that.
2: Yeah. Um so he's uh it, it's it's parole and it comes up um uh every uh, about a year uh every year. Um so if he was denied his first parole that was uh last year and he, he's, he's since then he's been given another chance he's applied for it. He was denied his last parole because uh, he the, the parole board didn't feel like he was taking his alcohol uh, be seriously enough, and he hadn't uh, completed any AA programs, uh, I've been told that he's almost inevitably doing some AA programs, and he's coming up for parole, I've been told, in April. Uh, so he would be uh, eligible uh, to go before the panel, and he'll have to answer questions um, again, and uh if he does receive this um there's there's two more chances to to get out um and and the final chance is on the final day of his sentence which yeah. happens in
1: 2025 so tw- after 2025 he will have completed his 10 year sentence yeah. and he he will uh, very unlikely make it or be in in jail until then uh, but in terms of parole, and I apologize for misspeaking earlier and, and conflating bail and parole. But uh, in terms of his parole hearing, the victims' families often get standing. They often get to uh, have some sort of victim impact. Do we have any sense whether or not this petition, which is being gathered right now, would that be entered, Would that be would, would that be considered by the parole board at all?
2: I think it'll be considered. I don't know. I don't know what weight they'll give it. You know, I mean, there. It sounds like the parole board is willing to hear a number of statements and causes and reactions and as you say victim impact um, but i you know at the end of the day they have to make their decision based on his time served um, and uh, at the end of the day what what i was told quite specifically is this and this is from a number of people that corrections is not responsible for punishing an inmate so the court sentences an inmate, and corrections takes that inmate and puts the, the puts the inmate on a corrections plan to get him ready for release. And, and, and their goal, and their only goal, is to make sure that he's not a threat to the public after he's released. So a lot of the other things surrounding that are really just noise. The idea that he's going to be punished. The idea that uh, what the family... Uh, you know what the family really wants or feels is really. I I don't want to I don't want to put it too much uh, to the side of you know fluffing it off. But at the end of the day, it's about the inmate and what the inmate has been able to achieve during uh, his time in prison.
1: Jeremy Grimaldi is a crime and justice reporter for YorkRegion.com. dot com. You can read his story about Marco Muzzo, who is likely to be up for parole. Come the spring. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me on the program.
2: Thanks for your time.
1: I want to talk about what's happened with Britain and Huawei very quickly, because it's important and it is going to reverberate for the next couple of days, weeks perhaps, and it has a real impact on this country as the Canadian government, the government of Justin Trudeau, tries to decide what it will do with Huawei in 5G. Britain has decided... To give Huawei a limited role in building its new high-speed mobile network, Huawei will be excluded from core parts of the 5G network and anything to do with national security. The National Security Council says it will take steps so that it can mitigate potential risk of cyber attacks or state-sponsored attacks. Here's Charles de la Desma.
0: The 5G infrastructure programme is seen as being critical to Britain's economic future as the country leaves the EU, that's on Friday, but the
1: decision is fraught as the US objects to allowing Huawei to provide vital infrastructure and has threatened to cut off intelligence sharing with allies that do use the Chinese company. Britain says, however, it hopes to mitigate any potential risk posed by elements in the supply chain. At this point, we are awaiting any official American response, but you know that Canadian officials are watching this extremely closely because it would be extremely difficult for us to go out on our own on this and say yes to Huawei if there were not other major players in the world who already had said yes. So this is going to put pressure on the United States now. How will it respond? Because at issue here is when we start talking about 5G and Huawei, you can just say, well, that's fine. We're not going to use Huawei parts. But the fact of the matter is Huawei parts are already all through our telecommunications network already. And to say no to Huawei as a vendor for anything to bring us 5G might mean that 5G would not come to Canada until it had already been deployed in other parts of the world. And that would create a gap. A gap for technology, for development, for infrastructure. Not to mention, we'd all be wondering, where's our self-driving car? Speaking of self-driving cars, perhaps Oscar Mayer's iconic wiener on wheels should go driverless because it recently got a grilling from a Wisconsin sheriff's deputy because the driver of the giant hot dog failed to give enough room to another car on the road with emergency lights. The sheriff's office said in a tweet on Monday that they'd pulled over the wiener mobile and given the driver a verbal warning for not following the law. Then the sheriff's office tweeted out a picture of the giant Wiener with the hashtags, move over and slow down. It's tough out there for a wiener.